Welcome to The Grow Room Diaries, a podcast brought to you from growroom420.com. In The Grow Room Diaries, we interview growers from around the world. We hope you enjoy this episode and check out our other podcasts. And of course, come and join the community at growroom420.com. Sweet. That appears like we are live on YouTube. Um, I'll do a little intro of I'm GMO. And uh, this week, we are live with Lemon Hoko. Welcome, dude. Did you want to let everyone know where they can find you? Well, hey, uh, GMO. Thank you for uh, inviting me to your show. Uh, I've been, a like I said I was earlier, I was, I've been a, a lurker for quite a while, and I really even enjoyed your content that you've had on. Um, the way you can find me, uh, where I hang out the most is probably on my Discord channel. But to get there, uh, you can find you can find my Instagram channel uh, through uh a search uh, just type in lemon hoko genetics uh, if you type in just lemon hoko there's some guy that's a fake lemon hoko out there you got to type in genetics either with the c or an x it'll still come up um but uh message me there and i can get you to my discord channel real easy and uh, that's a good way to get a hold of me and uh to hang out with the other breeders that we have there uh, speaking of that if you don't mind uh i want to throw a, a plug out there for uh, to my about uh, for my other breeders that, that are kind of doing the right type of uh, breeding on my channel. Uh, they're dropping testers constantly, uh, testing all the strains, uh, uh, and uh, we, we have them as a guest on our breeders uh, cast every week. Uh, we'll have a new breeder on, so that way uh, uh, the people that are growing their strains can can talk directly to the breeder. Some of the breeders we have on uh, on the Discord channel are Two-Tone Genetics. Uh, you, you probably can't get us uh, genetics anywhere out there except for on Discord. So if you if you know that guy and you know what he does, you, you might want to join the Discord to, to grab some of his testers that he's dropping. Um, Blessed Coast Seeds, uh, Titan, I've known him for 10 to 12 years. He's always done it right. Uh, he's start, just starting back up in a, in a good way. Uh, he's got some really hot testers dropping at this point um, coming up in the future too. He's, he's got some really nice lines. Um, he, he used to work really close with the uh, subcool. So uh, he's got that kind of flavor going plus some old school stuff that he's working. Um, Dragon flame genetics. If you guys uh, don't know him, you guys should have to, you should look him up on Instagram. The dude is like, <laughs> he posts a lot of flower shots and uh, you, you're going to really enjoy his uh, genetics. He, he, he's in Hawaii. I mean, the dude lives in paradise and uh, he shares it with everybody. Um, a newcomer to our, uh, our group and somebody that I'm really happy that, uh, that's joining us is Seattle Chronic Seeds. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard of him. He's been around for a little while, but um, he's got some really good, he, he, he works with old school strains and new strains and he he does it right too he does all the testing and he drops testers on the server so if you want to get in on early stuff before it hits uh, retail that's the way to do it um another uh, breeder we have there is a, a, a dirty bird uh trading company um, that's the j2 cons i don't know if you guys ever heard of him um, you got to look him up on instagram the dude has nothing but exotic land race, old school strains that you, you can't probably find anywhere. Um, he's, he's got a really nice collection. And um, if you're into that, I would suggest uh, looking him up. Some uh, uh, upcoming breeders that we got going. Um, another guy, uh, he's been with us for a little while, but he's just, uh, he, he does most of his stuff on the other side of the country. So I don't really see him a lot. His name's uh, Chief Toka. Um, he's got some really 
uh, good stuff. He's he's doing a lot of the commercial stuff uh, uh, in a state, um, but he still, you know, his his strains are still available. Um, an up, uh, upcoming breeder that we got going with us is uh, Mystic Genetics. Um, he's all over the internet. You probably see him in different chat rooms and stuff. Um, he's He's got some really epic strains that he's uh, saved from a long time ago that he's starting to breed and work. Um, Echelon Gardens, he's been, uh, I've known him for a couple of years. He took uh, my Dogon and bred with it and made some really, really nice strains out of the, some of the crosses uh, down the generations. He, he outcrossed and, and did some back crossing and, and so forth. The dude is very motivated, he's young, and he, I, I see a bright future for him. Um, one uh, addition that's uh, that I'm really happy he's going to be uh, joining our breeder cast here real soon uh, is Two Dog Seeds. Um, I don't know if you know or heard of Two Dog Seeds, but he's he works a lot of the chem dog lines. Um, that's what caught my interest because uh, that's some of my favorite lines. But the, those are the breeders that are, uh, and of course myself. But those are the breeders that are actually dropping testers and. Um, and uh, strains that you can actually uh, get from them directly without going to seed bank. So if you want to have access to these types of strains uh, before they hit the market, that's the place to go and get uh, have direct contact with them. Uh, we've been doing this for about two, three years on Discord. Um, we've got a really good community going there. I invite anybody that wants to just hang out and talk pot, weed, and breeding, and strains new and old come on out and join us like you say it's a it is a real active community man i joined up a couple of weeks ago and i've kind of been lurking and reading a few of the posts going on and you got some really good growers on there yeah and that's that's one thing is is we weed out the good growers versus the the fakes you know the, the people that come in just to grab the the free genetics they might do it once but we do track whether they test throw the strings or not. So we, we, everybody there is pretty much serious. So um, yeah, you can, you would see a lot of good stuff there. Um, it, 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 like I said, it's not just one strain or, or one type of strain. You're going to get a variety. It's like going into a mall, you know, you got different stores and different types of uh, 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 breeders working different strains. And that's, that's what I've wanted to create since I started this Discord channel. It's coming together like that too. And there's like two or three upcoming breeders that I've been chatting with that, that want to come in. And uh, yeah, there's a protocol that, that we demand here on, on Discord. And, and I demand it from, the, from the, the top down. If I do all my testing, if I send seeds out to be tested, I expect all the breeders that work on, on my Discord channel to do the same. And testing is uh, probably the most important part of what we do whether we're uh, breeding for uh, uh, cannabis or we're breeding anything, testing is really important. Hell yeah, man. I'm, I'm a firm believer in you don't necessarily want to be adding stuff to a gene pool that's recessive and going to bring out just negative traits in future generations. So I'm all about that. Like really test your shit out. There's a, there's a, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, but there are times when I'll keep uh, uh, a problem child around because I know that what showed is recessive. And if I can cross it out correctly, I can push that way, way down to where it's not going to come back up uh, easily. 
uh, and we're all talking, I think uh, we know what we're talking about on that is the stability uh, issue or the stability trait of uh, hermaphrodism. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, I don't always wash out um, all Hermes. It depends on their genetics, uh, what their parents were and what I expected to see out of the, of the cross. Yeah, man. Well, even in respects to just a fussy plant, I've got a mother plant that I keep around because the smoke is ridiculous, but I have to grow it in, in a completely different style to everything else because it needs support. It's a fussy little bugger, like, but it's around because it's got fire at the end of the day. So it's kind of worth it. See, that's, that's the, that's the final test. There's too many breeders that are testing their strains through their visual and bag appeal. And it, it, bag appeal is great, you know, if, if you want a quick buck, but it's not sustaining. It's the, it's the lead. It, people like Vision Creator. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of this dude. It, you know, he doesn't go for taste or terpenes or anything. And, and that's where we differ a little bit. Um, he goes for the high. And you got to love the dude. I mean, he's been doing it for, for probably as long as me or more or longer. I don't know. He's been, we have a long history together. Um, but he's... Uh, he does it for the right reason. He's, he breeds for the high and that's, that's his main focus. And, and somebody that's focused like that, I don't care whether you're, you're breeding fish, birds, dogs, whatever, to, to get to, to the point that you want to get to, you have to be focused on certain items. You can't focus on 50 different traits. You have to focus on certain traits and then you layer those traits is what I call layering. But we can get into that. Yeah, man. Well, before we get into that, um, we've already had a request for how people can jump onto your Discord channel. Is it best to kind of contact you directly, or is there somewhere you've got the like the open link posted? Oh boy, I, I don't even have my YouTube open. I was gonna uh, uh, post this link to my Discord so we'd have more uh, uh, people coming in from Discord. But yes, the best way to contact me or get on my Discord is just send me a, a, a direct message through uh, Instagram and uh, I'll send you all the information you need. It's like two clicks, you're two clicks away. Yeah, I was going to say I could post it in chat, but then I was like, it almost makes a nice first stage filter if people are actually going to the effort to contact you directly because it already means they've they've got a bit of intent for coming in to learn about breeding. And I actually have a different filter. A second filter too is, is that I ask people to send me a friends request. So they get on my friends list. So I have a, uh, as soon as I get them on my friends list, like I'm able to send them a, a, an invite directly. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily in a mind to make people work, but it does show that they're, they're not just coming in to kind of grab free stuff and run. I'm not too familiar with tech technical stuff, but there have been bots and bot programs that come through. And before you know it, you got 10 new uh, Discord members, you know, and stuff. So, so yeah, there's, there's uh, security me uh, measures put up to, to prevent that kind of stuff. And again, like I'm sure we said before the show, you've got a very clever team working over there for you. Oh, excuse me a second. No, you're all good, man. Um, I'm happy to have a little chat about how good the, the channel was. I got greeted quite nicely, br browsing through all the different uh, subcategories of the different breeders stock is really enlightening to kind of scroll back through and see 
how they've been grown out in different environments, how different people have fared with them. It's, you know what? Uh, your uh, thing, I got, I got, I have you down for an alert, and it didn't come up. I wonder why. Are you being shadow banned by YouTube? <laughs> um, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> you know, you know how the the world seems to dislike our plant for every good reason that we like it. Okay, I got the link now from YouTube. I'm going to go ahead and post it to my Discord, so we'll get a little bump in and and uh, people hanging out here. So yeah, um, the easiest way to connect with Discord, and like I said, there, there's security reasons, there's security measures up for a reason. You, you know that there's bots and stuff like that. But um, we like in the community, we don't want people. We don't care if you lurk, but we rather you get involved. You know, when you get on the Discord chat, put put in your comments, um, uh, post pictures if you have them. There's categories for all types of pictures. Um, and get to know people and let people get to know you. And once you get to know people, we have a genetics trade room that you can get involved with uh, where members trade with each other. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of options like this, but you have to be a member of the community. And you have to be known. People have to know you. So, so we, it, we ask people not to come right in and start asking for seeds or, or just, you know, don't be, don't be that rude guest. Act like you're walking into someone's house. That's all, all we ask. It, I kind of like it because for me, that's always been like the etiquette of our world. You've got to kind of sit quietly and listen before you can start trying to, I don't know, communicate on the right level for the audience you're with. And it was the same when I was buying weed. You know, you'd sit on a sofa and you'd sit quietly for the first five visits. And it took a little while to build the confidence to have a conversation with the dude and whatnot. And speaking of the audience, um, uh, probably 25% of our, our community members are from Canada and the United Kingdom and uh, other parts of Europe. And it's just, uh, so, so people are really connecting and stuff. So there's, there's a, a little com common uh, brotherhood there going. Hell yeah. I suppose, man, we haven't really got from, got to the start of things. Normally we start out with, uh, when was your first like cannabis experience, man? Oh my God. It's uh, way, way back. Okay. Uh, I started smoking pot when I snuck some pot out of my dad's uh, sock drawer. And he got it from his brother who grew it in New Mexico, up in the mountains in New Mexico. And uh, it was just all homegrown or whatever. I don't even know where Uncle Nick got the seeds. But um, he would pass it around to his brothers and sisters. And, and it was really illegal at the time. So it was kept, uh, you know, really private. But me being 13 and 14 years old and curious about my dad's guns and whatever else he had in his drawers, I would go through the drawers when he wasn't home and nobody was home. And I found this bag of weed and it's like, I heard about this. I read about this at school. <laughs> and uh, I took a little bit and I emptied out a cigarette. My dad was smoking camel cigarettes, non-filtered then, and emptied one of those out and uh, plugged up one end and rolled a small little tiny joint with it and smoked, uh, smoked that joint with some friends. And oh my God, did I get stoned? It was, we didn't even finish the joint. I think we got like two or three puffs each. And this is the first time I ever smoked weed it wasn't weed there was i don't think there was any bud in it it just it looked like parsley 
it just you know back then it was called grass uh people would call it grass and and uh, sexually what they called it um grass and and the way they bought when i started buying weed because we had a um i had a paper route at 14 15 years old so i had some excess uh, cash and every once in a while it wouldn't be every weekend but every once in a while i would try to hit uh, you know hit, hit up the guys that i thought had weed and i would and the way it would be sold is um they would call it a lid and you would measure the lid with your fingers like if it was a big lid you could put four fingers next to the baggie and call it a four finger lid and you'd measure if it's a smaller lid it'd be a two or three finger lid so that's how we we measured stuff back then it wasn't by weight it was just by mass by the way it looked um then then you know it, it graduated into see i was uh, i was 14 at that time and i didn't really smoke weed heavy until i was about when i say heavy it was every weekend every other weekend you know just partying after school after football games and stuff like that i was a jock in high school so i didn't really smoke a lot of weed in high school um i smoked uh towards the end of my high school career i, I started smoking more weed because I, I injured myself and uh, i couldn't participate in a lot of the sports so i started uh on weekends uh, connecting with the uh, the stoners, the guys that wore the leather jackets and hung out at, in the smoking areas uh, back in high school and, uh, and, and and started buying weed from them. And it was different back then. It was because at that time, graduated to scales. And the scale that we that was really popular back then at that time was um, the, the little counter, the, the pendulum scale. I don't know if you guys probably don't even know what it looks like, but you, you had it's got a little clip on it and you clip it to the bag and this little pendulum tells you whether it's close to seven grams or three grams. And they they were always like a gram or two off. Nobody cared back then. It was just, if it looked good, you know, you paid it. And back then it was, um, you know, the first stuff that was going around back then was like Colombian, uh, that brick weed. That, that's, that's what was good. You know, that was what we paid for. And a quarter, of it costed it was like 10 or 15 bucks when i first started buying it for for like a quarter and the, and and the way you measured how good it was back then if you paid like 10 or 15 bucks for it you wanted to get at least 10 or 15 joints out of it right so you'd crush it all up and clean all the seeds out and all the stems out and if you got 15 joints out of it you got a good deal and <laughs> that's that's how that's how we kind of graded our, our weed way back in the day and then, then the 80s came around, and um, this is after high school, right after I graduated out of high school. Um, I was kind of well-connected with, with the Colombian and the, the Thai market, but we started seeing some green weed coming around. We called it, um, let's see, back then, it was just homegrown. We called it just homegrown. But the homegrown, it wasn't how homegrown was labeled now. Homegrown was labeled with a negative uh, aspect to it now. Back then, if you got good homegrown, if you got homegrown, it was like killer. Um, you, everybody wanted that green, green weed, homegrown. And uh, that was back in the early 80s. And then we graduated. I started growing um, about 78. That was, I was 18, just got out of high school. Um, I, I bought a four, 400 watt halide from a little uh, grow shop I mean, the grow shop had to be so like around the corner of, of all the other shops and they were like they had to be really uh, uh stealth um but the the 400 watt halide kit that i bought uh, came in pieces 
it, 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 nowadays we're spoiled. We buy a, a, a ballast. It's like a, you know, a case and got a white or whatever colored ballast and it's all in a case. You just plug it in and go. But back then you had to put all the pieces together. <laughs> the, uh, it was, I mean, it came with good instructions, but um, the instructions were to, you know, get a piece of plywood and uh, secure everything to the plywood, then hang the plywood on the side of, close to your grow room. And, be, and it gave, gave a, a fair warning to not touch anything or, or have it close to any walkways to shock anybody. And that, that was the major problem back in the early 80s, 90s, when people started growing. A lot of bus happened it was pretty easy because there was a lot of fires and a lot of electrical hazards there were so many novices getting into it and what the equipment wasn't that good everything had to be done you know pretty much diy and and uh and that's where the problems happen and that's where you hear about a lot of the shit with the cops that came in and, and busted you know big grows and stuff it's mainly because of the, the technical issues and um and then i graduated from uh the little 400 to a bigger grow, um, I ran into a guy and there's so many things that we can cover right now. In the early eighties, um, I started getting into, well, mid eighties, I started getting into cocaine. I was dealing a lot of weed and I paid, I paid for my cocaine habit with, uh, selling weed and I got hooked on cocaine really bad and, uh, and I wanted to get off of it. So, I didn't want to go through a, a rehab program, couldn't afford it and stuff like that. So I went, I went and I did it myself. I, I, I made myself bankrupt by going and getting into RC cars, remote control cars. I don't know if anybody's done remote control cars, but man, uh, uh, that hobby is very expensive and it'll break you. And it, it did. It, it kept me so broke that I couldn't. And, and, and I had that adrenaline rush from racing. I actually became uh, a sponsored racer uh, through, through this venture. And being a sponsored racer, I got to meet some really cool people that hung out at the tracks. And one of them was the guy um, I'm gonna tell you about, he was my mentor. And um, I, you know, I love the guy to, to this day, I hope uh, he's still alive. And he was a little bit older than me, about 10 years older than me. Um, he, he, the last thing I heard was he moved down to Oregon. So Ed, if you hear my voice, <laughs> And you ever hear this cast? Get a hold of me, bro. I'm still, I'm still in Tacoma. Um, but uh, he taught me. Well, what we did was we started hanging out, racing, and I, and I started smoking some pot, you know, in our pit when we were pitting and working on cars. And he would break out a bowl, and I'd look and say, "Well, shit, can I get some of that?" And he would charge me like twenty bucks for a quarter. And like okay that that was a clue right off the bat that this dude grew grew weed he didn't need it he wasn't selling it at market prices so i asked him if uh if i could get a, a, a larger amount uh on a front and i would pay him the next day and he gave me a quarter pound i think for 200 bucks back then and um i ended up making almost three times well three times as much on the quarter price. so i sold it all together for 600 so it was like fuck i made i make good bank on that so I gave him money uh, the next day and it became to where it got to where I was turning five pounds a week for him and making a killer bank. And um, after about three years of dealing with him and selling weed and, and becoming a big force in the, in the weed in, underground weed industry up here and by moving all that way, um, I decided that I wanted to get some of that money myself. I wanted to grow. So I set up my, uh, 
I had him help me set up the grill and it was a failure. I, I kept on, I tried to, um, I didn't listen to his instructions uh, to a T. I never called him. I tried to do things on my own. I, I had my pH meters. It, it was all hydro. So, and, and back then there was no stuff that you just buy off the shelf. There's no foods or nothing like that. You had to do everything from scratch. I mean, I, the chemicals were colored. There's pink, white, and blue. And you had to have a certain measure of each to make the, the formula that we we're using for hydro. Um, but um, I fucked up and he came in and saw what happened was I read, I read the pH wrong and it showed that I was high on pH. So I brought, I went to the store and got some pH down and I dropped it too low. It's like, oh fuck, I'm down at 5.0. I got to bring it back up. So I brought the pH back up. So I was going up and down, up and down, trying to dial in my pH and not knowing this, I'm thinking everything's cool. I made a toxic soup out of my, my hydro uh, kit and it killed, I mean, it's, fucked everything up for and then i did it again on the next set of clones he, he turned me on to and then he got fed up on the second set i mean he, it was a, he was a hard dude i mean he got pissed he walked into my room looked at the the, the plant and threw it across the room said i can't make no fucking money with you <laughs> that, that was my lesson that was my big lesson so i had to learn on them and i i went all the way back to where i didn't even ph anything i just took water from the tap and I grew my first fucking crop after 18 months of trying. Uh, I had my first crop. So I had, I found out that you don't want to fuck with things, you know, keep it simple, as simple as possible. That was my first 10 years of growing is with hydro. And, you know, the, the, the strains back then, they didn't have names. We didn't, we, they, they were named by the, either the person that handed you the strain or the area that you got it from. Um, or, or like the, the purple, that was one of my first strains that I grew. I grew, we called it perp. Um, this is, it came out of Oregon. It was tracked back. It was the, the original granddaddy purple. Later, you know, at first we did, everybody just called it purple because it was the only purple that was worth growing back then. Um, and granddaddy purple, if you track the history of it, it, it originally it was supposed to be, it is, uh, 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 purple Urkel crossed to Salmon Creek Big Bud, and and that's the traits that it grew. I mean, it, it's a it was a very big, good producer back in the day. The the perp, the the Grand Ayer purples that you're seeing nowadays by different breeders and so forth. And I know some of these breeders. I know Ken Estes. I know you know I've talked to him uh, one on one, and he, you know he's done the best job I think that he could with the strain but it's not what I grew back in the eighties. Um, and the other strain that I grew uh, with the purple, uh, we called it back in the day, it was called, we just called it UW because it, that's, the, that's where it came from. It came from the college. And this is controversial. There's no record of this. I, I took hours look, trying to look up some, some sort of documents uh, to, to substantiate what I'm telling everybody. But I'm just telling you from my history, from my eyes, what I was told from this strain and the way it is morphed into the, the 88 G13 uh, hash plant is it the hash plant or haze. I can't remember. I think it's the haze, but anyways, that cross I I've smoked that before and there is a similarity in the terpenes. It's not exactly the G the, the university of Washington, but it's very, very close. So um, I grew those two strains. Oh shit. UW and purple for 
12 years the first time, and I think 10 years the second time before uh, they were taken away from me by the cops. Uh, see, and then, then I had to, when I, I you know, by, by then, you know, after one year of being on probation and so forth, I had to, I wanted to get restarted and regrew. I got a string called, um, this is about early 90s, mid 90s, right around the mid 90s. I got a strain, no, it was about 92. I got a strain called, uh, God, it's gotta be earlier than that. I was 28 and growing that. So it was in the 88, it was right around 88, 89. I got, I got a strain by, from a friend that was called Hoko. And this strain, let me tell you a little bit about this strain. Um, I didn't know that where the name came from or what it meant. And actually I asked, uh, asked him uh, later uh, after I grew, grew it a few years, I said, where, you know, what does, what the fuck, where did Hoko come from? Where does the name and shit mean? He, he told me that Hoko's stood for Humboldt County. If somebody took a, a, a strain or some, some weed that came up from Humboldt County and um, planted it. And that was the cut that they kept. And um, from my experience, when I smoked it, um, it was um, a, a hybrid for sure. It, it had purpling qualities. It actually turned very, very purple, reddish purple, um, that magneta color or whatever they call it. Um, it reminded me when I tasted it, it had a lot of similarities to what we, what I remember of the uh, uh, mid eighties uh, Maui Wowie, the, the weed that came over from Hawaii. And I, I, I I sold pounds of that shit when it came in. It went, once it came in, it was good. It was rolling. But once it got, once it was done, we, we couldn't find not, nothing of it anymore. It was done. It was, I think about 10 pounds came through my hands, but it was done after that. Uh, but I remember the Maui and the high was, on the Maui was very, very special. And it had this, uh, like a, like a, it was almost like if you touched your uh, uh, tongue on the end of a little six volt battery. It gave you a little bit of a tingle taste, that metallic taste. I call it, I call it a, a metal taste, a metallic high. <laughs> and yeah, that's what I, I remember. What yeah, that's what I remember about the Maui, but it had that fruit essence, but it still stung your, t the tip of your tongue like that. And, and that was special, and, but the high was very, very funny. I mean, you could sit there and, and I've done it. I mean, I must've been a lightweight back then. I was 28, 30 years old. It wasn't too much of a lightweight because I smoked for, for over 10, 15 years then. I was going to um, say, I'm nearly offended by that. Like, <laughs> I'm only in my 30s, man. You call me a lightweight. <laughs> You're all but, good. Sorry, carry on. But, when we, you know, I'd sit there in a room full of guys and we'd be smoking a joint. Just This is the type of weed that just make you bust out and laugh without no reason. You just look at the next guy and just start laughing. And you have this uncontrollable laughing fit for about 15, 20 minutes. Everybody would. Everybody just sit there and laugh until then you came down. <laughs> it was one of those kind of fun type of highs. That's what I remember about the Maui. But um, that's what the Hoko, the Hoko, the special thing about the Hoko, though, it had that, that, that little bit of Maui taste. But what it was known for was its coffee and chocolate tone. It had a very strong skunk coffee and chocolate. I mean, it was special. You can open the bag and say, ooh, smell coffee grounds in there. And I never put coffee grounds in my pot. I mean, that was one way of trying to beat the uh, cop dogs is through coffee grounds and pepper and all that. And that, that never works, guys. I know for a fact. And um, 
but yeah, that's that was uh, the hoko and the lemon in my name came from a, a seed I popped out of 400 seeds. Uh, we we whittled it down to I think three keepers. One was the lemon, another one we called grapefruit, and another one we called grape because the the calyxes just looked like a a, a thing grapes, just a big bowl of grapes. But um, we grew those three strains out, um, and when I say we, I was renting. Uh, commercial or rental houses at the time. And, and I think we try to keep a, a, a three houses going uh, every year. We did this for about three, almost four years. Um, and I try to keep three houses going and, and what we're trying to do is fill those three houses up with just the hoko and one other strain. So we had to weed out which was gonna be the keeper. So we grew those three strains out for three crops, did wake tests, we did smoke tests, we sold them. And you know, all of our customers wanted the, the lemon, the lemon skunk. And this is before lemon skunk was even lemon skunk or anybody even heard about lemon skunk. And everybody just, I mean, we just called it lemon skunk because that's what it smelled like. It smelled like, it tasted like lemon and it was very skunky. It was actually a little bit more, to me, it was a little bit more potent than hoko, but they were both very, very potent. Um, the, those I, I grew for uh, a total of uh, probably 22 years before um, the cops took those out of my life too. But it, because of the, me losing the lemon and the hoko is what got me into breeding cannabis. I decided that, oh man, I, I know how to breed. I'll just remake uh, the hoko strain. But it hasn't been as easy as I thought it was gonna be. And that's where, that's where you know, I, I started uh, actually making some first crosses about 2004, 2005. Uh, I started with the blueberry. I had some airborne blueberry uh, guy, a breeder named Airborne. He had some blueberry and then I took some DJ short blueberry and I crossed those two. And then I made some other crosses with airborne. I, I think I crossed airborne to uh, almost everything. Sour diesel. Uh, I got, I got some really old seeds that I can probably pop, but there was problems with the airborne that that male was beautiful. I mean, he looked, he was an indica uh, heavy male, but he just turned purple every fucking time he flowered, whether you were in cold room or not. And he was just beautiful. But um, the problem was his, his uh, first generation F1s were very like 50% hermaphrodites in, in the count. So I just kind of shucked him after about two breedings. It's like, this ain't gonna work out. I didn't want to start with a headache. You know, I wanted to start out with, cause there's too many other stable lines out there that, that you can start with. Um, and, you, you know, I did have a, a big genetic, big uh, catalog of uh, uh, UK genetics. I bought a lot of my, my, my seed stock from, um, I think it was called Attitude Seed Bank and different uh, 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 European seed banks. But uh, I decided at one point in time in my life to just to kind of concentrate on um, American strains, the strains that were developed and grown in here in North America. And that's why, why I kind of, well, the blueberry, if you know the genetics of it, it wasn't really grown here in North America, but the majority of work to make the, the strain what it is has been done here in North America, I believe. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where I started uh, in, in 2007. Um, I made a strain that, that kind of has been um, confused with maybe another strain with the same name. But 2007, I made a strain called Berry White. I crossed uh, uh, a DJ Short pre-99 Sativa Blueberry to uh, a, a strain called uh, White Indica by Ceres Seeds, C-E-R-E-S. They were, they were a, a breeder. 
and before they they started doing fems they had uh, regulars and i found a uh, i found a nice representative uh, uh, male that i wanted to use and and the reason why i used this male is because the females were all stable i grew out the the white indica females actually i grew i had three packs of seeds that i, I popped to, to test them. I didn't grow them all at the same time, but they're in, in succession. And um, I, I wanted to see how stable the females were and I didn't have one Hermie through the females. So that, that tells me that the stability is there even through the males. And um, and the, the, the terpenes is very important if I was gonna cross it back to the blueberry. And I don't know if a lot of breeders uh, take this into consideration, but you're gonna have a clash of terpenes or you're gonna have one dominant, one uh, recessive. And sometimes when you have a clash of terpenes, it'll go back into what I call muddy mode, earthy. And um, it, it'll show almost on your first generation, your F1s, whether you have a clash of terpenes. In my opinion, um, it, it, what I was shooting for was I wanted the blueberry uh, uh, terpene to be dominant at that time because that was what um, the market wanted. Everybody wanted that blueberry uh, taste. So I used uh, the, the white indica because of the terpene being a little bit earthy and uh, just a touch of lemon. And it did have a little bit of a skunk aftertone. Um, and none of those would clash with what I was doing. And other than the earthiness started coming out in some of the F generation. So that's why I had to go down to F4. I, it took me four years to find the keeper berry white mom, which I still have. Uh, and I found her, no, wait, took, yeah, well, from the start, if I wanted to count the start, um, I ran four generations. It took about three and a half years to finish that. So at, at 2010 is when I made, when I found the Barry White F, F4. And during that time, when I, when I made the F4 generations, I was still, I was doing other projects. I, I uh, grew out and found uh, a nice, I mean, cause I smoked all the females so I, I can test and know what the, the terpenes are gonna be like that the males are gonna throw. I found, uh, I grew out some OG Rascals uh, gear, uh, some of those fire alien OG. And I liked the, the, the funk that it brought in through the taste It had skunk, funk, um, uh, you know, fire alien, you got the alien uh, uh, structure. So everything was, was cool about that. And I bred that um, back to Barry White, that Barry White F4. Um, and that's where uh, I made a strain called Boag ET, Barry White uh, OG, stands for the fire alien, Barry White BWOG, uh, Barry White times the fire alien, the ET stands for the, the alien. So it's Boag ET. I made that strain specifically to, to pick out a male so I can cross it back into Barry White F4 to make my first back cross. I did that and released the seeds. I think, um, where was that? It was one of the UK seed banks. I can't remember which seed bank it was. Um, actually, it was like two or three seed banks. I dropped the Barry White uh, back cross at. This is back in 2011, I believe. Um, so Barry White was dropped about 2011. I had still run uh, the, the mama for a little while, but through that Barry White back cross, what I did was I ran uh, and found some males that I was interested in. And now I'm starting to focus on the thin leaf sativa uh, leaning males, uh, that Barry White uh, back cross. 
remember berry white was from blueberry which was sativa so there's a recessive sativa in berry white as it stands even though she looks like a hybrid um she throws uh the, the sativa as a recessive so what i did with with that was uh the berry the, uh, the berry white back cross was i looked for the the sativa looking males and i crossed a nice sativa looking male back to mama blueberry where it all started the pre-99 sativa blueberry and uh that's where i got my first blueberry back cross one and i tested those grew those out the terpene uh results come, getting getting feedback from my testers was about um about 60 70 percent i still had some earthiness coming through um the stability was a little bit off it was still about 15 percent uh clean uh, her, her, her hermaphrodites uh showing up so um, out of the back cross ones, I made, I found a nice male that had same sativa uh, tendencies and structure and traits. Uh, and the way I, I determine this is not just through veg guys, you gotta grow out your males, take clones of them or grow them out, let them flower and then re-veg them. But at least see the full expression of your male and flower before you make your pick. You can't do it from veg state. Can't do you can't do females from veg state. What, how can you expect to do male? You have to you have to examine it all. But anyways, I, I took a male from the BX uh, ones to make the BX twos, the blueberry back cross twos. This is where I had some problems. I had some personal issues going on. I was getting into uh, a commercial grow here as a, a geneticist for their uh, company, and, um, and it took me away from my personal grow. So um, I missed uh, the, the light bulb switch when I, I switched my bulbs uh, every three crops. And this went like, oh shit, seven crops before I realized that I forgot to switch my bulbs. I mean, it was almost two rounds of bulbs. And by then I had already, I was in flower with my BX2s with very, very, very old uh, HPS bulbs. And I don't know if anybody has done this before, but I started noticing issues in the flower room with my stable females, my moms. It's like, holy shit, you know, why is this happening? And when I started looking at the dates, because I write dates on all my bulbs, and it's like, oh shit, that's what's going on. So I, I made BX2s. I tested, I, I did a test grow of 50. Um, I had 20% come back as hermaphrodite in my personal test grows. And um, so I decided not to release that. I, that's the only uh, back cross so far that didn't test well. And if, me personally, it was a, a, a technical issue versus a, a genetic issue, but that, that told me that the genetics weren't tight because it could have happened to somebody else. If I release these strains, they're gonna to go to people that forget to change their light bulbs and so forth. So I try to try to make these strains as stable as possible. And I didn't release the back cross twos. Matter of fact, I still have them. Um, I don't, I'd probably just keep them around just for emergency, just in case uh, I lose some, everything in, in a fire or something and I have to, have to dip into those just by uh, by force, but anyways, uh, I'm I made the back cross threes and did heavy testing on back cross threes. I think I sent out forty packs of uh, testers for the back cross threes, and I seen those tested in um, different forums on the on on the internet. I can't remember exactly which forums, but they were also tested in my uh, on my Discord server, and and the feedback was just uh, it it was exactly where I thought it was going to be. Um, the, the Hermie ratio was very, very low. I think it was like 10%, one out of 10 females. 
uh, and I'm not saying full Hermy. Yeah, we're talking uh, late nanners and so forth, any type of hermaphrodism. Um, but uh, the terpene factor increased on the back cross threes uh, because of the selection and where we're at. Uh, we we're getting eight out of 10 females that were definitely, you know, blueberry syrup terpenes, blueberry muffin. Some were, see, there's a range. Not all of them are the same. You're going to have a range of uh, blueberry. Some are going to be a little bit more floral. Some are going to be a little bit more deeper in the blueberry, more of a syrup. And some are going to be more of a lighter, more of a muffin. So you're going to have a range and you're going to be able to pick your, your keeper from that range. Um, but it's all definitely blueberry. Um, I had maybe one out of 10 females that showed maybe a slight earthiness. So, so that was a go. And now we're on back cross four. That's the next project. I'm planning on probably releasing those, uh, the testers this, this uh, late spring or uh, sometime this summer. And I, I suggest anybody that wants to get, get some really good seeds to, to, to save some garden space uh, in your rooms and uh, we'll make sure it happens. There, there are often them testers being dropped as well. It was only kind of recently that I saw a post go up that somebody was testing something like in the last two days. Yeah, I have, uh, I think, three different test st testers going, three different strains being tested right now. So there's there's people that are, um, some strains that are out of testing and, and they're already in retail, but people like they want to share their pictures. So they'll, they'll post picture, they'll post uh, their photos in that thread, which makes it kind of look like a tester, but it's not. I, usually once they get out of testing, I'll, I'll mark the, the thread as retail and finish testing. But um, it's really important, and, and I stress this to any new breeders that are listening, um, you don't want to get into this. If, if you're serious about breeding, you don't want to get into it short term. And if you're not going to test correctly, that's what's going to be. You're going to end. I've seen breeders. I've seen breeders get laughed out of the community. I've seen breeders get shunned. Uh, if, if you just, if you don't have documentation on your test, you know, it's very important that you have your testers take pictures, document, save those pictures, and this way you can always go back and uh, verify your testing. It's very, very important. It, what we're trying to do in this cannabis community is produce better pot, not just pot, not just weed. We're trying to produce the best weed. Every generation of weed is supposed to be better than the last. And um, it, it's getting there. We, we've got some really good motivated breeders uh, coming up and hopefully I can motivate more breeders by this conversation because it's very important. There's, People are thinking, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, you know, it's a very crowded uh, uh, community. And it's really competitive. Yes, it is. Anything that's worth doing is going to be competitive, but it's competition is what brings the best out of anybody, right? I mean, for you, if you want to be good, you're going to have to look at your competition. You're going to have to beat me. I'm, I'm telling you ways of beating me and I'm, I'm explaining it. It's just for you to apply it and, and go with your own style. And, and, and it's competitive, yes. But that's in anything that's worth doing is competitive. Yeah, man. Well, I wanted to ask that I know we're talking about testing is a very big focus of this discussion. Like, what, at what generation do you feel like it would be worth giving it to people to actually test on a grander scale that's not uh, focused on bringing it back to breeding? Well, it depends on what your goal is. It depends on what your ultimate goal is. Are you, are you, do you, well, there's two things. 
your goal and what you're working with. Okay. If you're working with two unknown strains, two hybrids, and you, if you're a good breeder, if you're a conscious breeder, you'd want to know everything about those two hybrids. And the only way to do that is to make crosses and to grow up the, the progeny. And you, that's the way and keep making crosses and digging into the genetics of, and, and here, I learned a lot of my, my breeding techniques when I first started with cannabis uh, through reading Chimera's uh, uh, written literature. I, I'm sure a lot of people know who Chimera is. If you don't look him up, um, you know, he's got, he's got a mass knowledge of, of breeding. Um, he, he, he shares it in different forms and so forth. But when I first read his um, writings, he suggested to take, um, what you're doing is to, in the F generations, the way he described it, and this is just the, his aspect of, of going it this way, um, is, is to open up the genetic uh, gene pool of, of the parents by doing open breeding. So you make the first F generation, you got F1s coming from um, two parents. You breed as many offspring as you can, male and female, back to each other, the F generations, to open up the wider gene pool and you grow those out and see what's there. And you do that again. And it's just open, open, open. This is to explore, to see what you have in the genetics. Once you understand where you're at, he says to take it down to F8, which is extreme. In my case, that'd be eight years of growing. Um, but he says to take it down to F8 to find out what is in the parents. And that's when he would suggest to do the first back cross, because then you would know the traits that you want, want to uh, isolate and work for. For me, because a lot of the, um, I, I understand a lot of the, the genetics I've gone into, some of the strains I've worked with, and I know who the breeders are who made the strains. I don't feel like I have to go that deep to know the parents. Like I've already smoked the parents like for years. So I kind of I, I kind of go down to about F4. That's what I did with the, the Barry White. Now, if it's uh, an heirloom or something that's been back crossed several times, let's say for let's say Stardog back cross to or Stardog back cross, well, I know JJ did excellent work with that back cross. I grew I grew out the Stardog back cross. I found you know it was very very uniform. He did he did proper selection. The the terpenes were like super. The plant structure was beautiful. Um, he did really nice work, and it didn't take that much knowledge to know what was in that 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 Stardog backcross. So what I did was I made the F F uh, one generation of that Stardog backcross, and I took a male because I already knew how the females grew. I took a male and crossed it back to the the first Stardog backcross keeper, and made my first backcross uh, uh, two out of that then i found a male and that's what the out of the back cross twos and that's what i use for breeding so in my opinion when you take it when you take somebody's strain or somebody's work strain if you have crossed it three times or worked and manipulated the the genetics of that strain at least three times that's your line i mean it wouldn't have happened in nature by 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 accident so you you help direct that line that's fair, man. That's more than fair. Because, again, I look at some breeders who I feel have almost an isolated gene pool. They've been working stuff for, you know, like 15 odd years, just a handful of different strains. So when they introduce something to it, they only need one generation to see what the seeds produce. And then they know if they need to be back crossing to what they're trying to introduce 
to get the recessive traits across in the first place. Like, exactly. exactly. And, and if, when you go to filial generations, if you're doing, if you're not doing focused uh, 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 traits, if you're just opening up the, the genetics, um, I don't, me personally, because of it, it all goes by your experience. What have you experienced in the weed world? Have you smoked a big variety? Can you judge what you're smoking against something that, that you smoked in the past versus, you know, it all goes back to your personal experience. If you, if you aren't that experienced, you have to go deeper in the filial generations to know what you're doing. Um, and that was, that. see, that this is, I have, I've had this discussion with, with other people that, that are into genetics in college, at college levels. And, and, and there's not always a certain way. Okay, this is when you open up the genetics. Now, there is a different uh, method of doing filial generations when you're targeting certain traits. And instead of opening it up, you're, you're bottlenecking certain traits, meaning you're doing less parents and selecting for, for, for uh, focused uh, uh, offspring. So that's, that's a different method. And that's a different thing of, you know, it depends on what you're after. Like I said, genetics, when you're doing breeding, you have to set a goal. And you have to, once you set a goal, develop a game plan to reach that goal. And, and whether you have to write it down or it's in your mind or you have to put it on audio, you know, do it. And, and, and that's, what, that's how you learn by setting your goal and getting there. Because if you don't set a goal, you're going to always be crossing and, and, and making polyhybrids and just wondering and, and searching. You're not, you're not going to be creating. You're going to be searching for your keeper. Yeah, I, I can completely understand that. There's a difference in the numbers game and then a breeder's eye, I suppose. Yeah, it, it's like art. You know, I, I kind of, you know, I, a, lot of, a lot of breeders are kind of uh, relate this, what I'm going to say to them. It's, it's, it's like art. You know, you can, get, you can give a group of people a, a palette and some paint and brushes, but not all of them are going to be artists. Breeders are different. They, they have a different mindset. They have a, an idea where they want to go with their projects, just like artists. You know, if they have an idea where, where they want to go. It's just an art, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm really interested in all the different ideas of it because, um, yeah, I, I've got some stuff that's considered close to land race that, I don't know, could have some genetic potential if I were to look into it. But then that would mean so many grows that it kind of almost puts me off having an eight-year plan here's the okay i'm gonna just throw this in before i forget here's the biggest fallacy in in breeding where people new breeders they, they get lost in this idea um a lot of people think that breeding cannabis is like making milkshake like you put strawberry and chocolate together you're gonna get strawberry chocolate as the offspring it doesn't work like that, guys. You might get some chocolate. You might get some strawberry. You might get something that you think is chocolate and strawberry. But nine times out of ten, it does not work like that. You might get, most likely, you'll get an earthy flavor that comes through. You might get something that tastes like baby powder. You don't know what the genetics and the crosses will bring out. It's all an experiment. That's why you have to do your F generations. That's why you got to do your testers. got to see what push forward. Once you do your testers, and then you, you can then you can kind of predict which way the gene uh, and the terpenes will line up on that certain cross. And do you want to go forward with that and push it, or do you want to? I mean, this, these are the things that, that you got to think. It's not like making milkshakes, guys. It's it's totally different. There's one terpene, but there's one. There are traits that are going to be dominant, and there are traits that are going to be recessive, 
and there are traits that you don't even know that are there that are going to come up and surprise you. Hell yeah. Yeah, man. I, I'm super interested. And when you think about how much information's in them genes, like a lot of the time, I feel like, um, I don't know, like we're ignorant with how much information we think we know. <laughs> like we always get caught out by nature as soon as we start thinking we know, we, yeah, we got this fucking hurricane. <laughs> you, you know, I, I suggest, I, I was going to mention earlier to you, but I suggest uh, to my kids when they ask me, uh, uh, how, how do I learn genetics, dad? How do I learn? And I'll tell them, um, and these are, you know, they're grown kids. They're not younger kids. They're, they're in their adulthood. I tell them, if you really want to learn genetics, you got to pick up animals, creatures, flowers, whatever, something that breeds fast. It, it has a fast genetic or uh, gestation rate, has a fast maturity rate, something you can read really quick. Not cannabis. Cannabis is somewhere you apply what you learn. To me, this is my opinion. I, when I learned genetics, I learned with guppies. I learned with hamsters. I learned with rabbits. I learned with uh, fast breeding animals, guinea pigs. Pete in chat um, and myself, I did a little in college, to be fair. Um, it was, it's fruit flies because oh. there's like known recessive traits in fruit flies. And I, they breed fucking fast, man. It's like seven I, days to a generation or something. I actually tried the fruit flies, except for those fuckers. How do you catch them? How do you, how do you examine them? <laughs> yeah, it's keep them in boxes and then little door traps to filter them through. Fuck that, man. I, I did. I really did try fruit flies. I did the breeding with them and all that. I had little bananas and the, 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 the you know, the, the tunnels, the, the whatchamacallum, the, the, the funnels for them to go into and then you plug them up with cotton and then you cross them and shit like that i tried but they they always got loose and i just had a room full of fucking flies all <laughs> so <I just laughs> no what you want when you got to grow a room next door to it well this is when i was a kid i was doing like uh, i bred back then i was breeding um uh, lizards like uh, the american animals the, the chameleons i was oh, breeding cool. i was breeding toads i was breeding uh I, but my favorite was guppies because Guppies have a gestation period of, um, well, not, it, my favorite was uh, uh, hamsters. Hamsters have a gestation period of 16 days. You know, you can put two hamsters together in two weeks, you're going to have babies. And in three weeks, those babies are going to be adults and able to grow and breed. I mean, they're, it's not ideal to breed them at that young, but you can breed them that young. So uh, when I, I bred hamsters for about three years, uh, when I was there, between 12 and 15 years old. Matter of fact, we came up from California in a little Volkswagen, and I think I had 27 hamsters. Uh, I had three litters of hamsters in, in the Volkswagen. So yeah, we came up and went 2,000 miles with three three litters of hamsters in the Volkswagen Beetle. That was, uh, but you, I learned a lot. The way I started was uh, I took, I, as it was just a fluke. Um, um, I had a golden hamster, which is, a, you know, the, the dark brown ones. And that is dominant in nature. And usually the darker colors are dark, dominant. D darker pigment uh, is dominant. And then, uh, and I had a, an albino. This was given to me by my parents as a Christmas gift. And an albino hamster. And I didn't know this. Albino is recessive, totally recessive. Red eyes, it can't, you know, have dark, any dark pe pigment. If it's true albino, it's going to be recessive. 
So I had to start from a totally dominant and a totally recessive uh, 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 pair. And I didn't understand what dominant and recessive was back then. I just thought when I crossed them, I was going to get cream colored hamsters. You know, one was brown, one was white. So I was going to get cream ones. It didn't work out that way. <laughs> they all they were all all eight of the babies were all brown it's like what the fuck you know something's wrong with my my male or, or something's going on here he's, or he's too too strong then i i picked up uh you know these books i don't they, they were like pet care books way back the paperbacks that you could buy at the pet shops with the hamsters and stuff that you would buy the, the, one couple of them had cool little breeding sections in them they would talk about mendel's law and everything it got me really interested even talk about the the fruit flies and uh, how genetics work and stuff and i started seeing the the the, the chart the um what, what you call it chart oh fuck um anyways it's the it's the chart that mendel used to to do the uh the dominant and recessive i can't remember uh, mendel square or something like that yeah the pit it's the pen the pen something p square but um but anyways it, it, it's it I learned a lot through that breeding process because I made, I ended up making purebred albino hamsters within let's say about a year. It took me about 20 litters, but I figured it out. And, and it's surprising when, when you're like 13, 14 years old, who would have ever thought, thought if you bred two brown hamsters together that you're going to get half a litter of uh, white ones, pure albino. Like, holy shit, I guess the books were right. So that caught my interest. And then I went into high school because I was interested in genetics, I, I took uh, biology every year in high school, like biology one, two, and three. Uh, and then when I could, uh, I took, because you can't get into zoology until you take all your biology classes. Uh, that was in high school. So I, I took um, zoology the, 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 as soon as I could. And I went through zoology one and two before I got out of high school. And I was planning on being becoming I wanted to become a vet veterinarian coming out of high school, but uh, my grade point average was too low. And my, my counselor goes, no, you better like look for maybe construction work or something. Cause I, I, I goofed off. I mean, I, I scored in the upper 10% of the nation on the ASVAB test. I don't know if you guys know what that ASVAB test is. Um, it's a military uh, aptitude test that you, they give you in high school over here. Um, but I scored in the top 10% of the nation for that. And I had like uh, the Navy hounding me for, for their nuclear power program back then. And they were promising me all kinds of shit, but I didn't want to go in the military. I, I ended up, uh, see back then I was just dealing weed. I didn't want to get my hair cut, you know, and it was, I didn't want to stop smoking pot. I, I ended up working in restaurants. Uh, uh, and I actually, when I was, uh, 17 years old, I was an assistant district manager for the Haven Corporations, and they were at that time a really big sandwich, uh, a, a gourmet sandwich and soup shop. And they had uh, 14 restaurants, I think, on the West Coast. We had three of them here in the Northwest, and there was like seven in Hawaii. And my job was to fly. At that point, I was getting prepped and being taught the job to fly from Seattle to Hawaii going through San Francisco because there was a bunch of them in San Francisco. And I was uh, basically supposed to run all these restaurants, you know, with the management team under me and stuff. But Reagan became president and uh, that corporation shut down and there was no jobs. Uh, the Haven was a subsidiary of uh, the Reynolds Aluminum Company and they liquidated all the Haven restaurants. So that left me unemployed for almost two years. 
And during those two years, I had two little uh, babies to feed. And I upped my game and, and, and a lot more weed. And that's when I got busted for the first time. That changed my whole world. And after that, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't go in the military, even if I wanted to. It didn't matter what my test scores were. Um, so I ended up being a waiter for like eight years while I was growing weed at night. And I worked, uh, you know, well, I worked two jobs, basically. I, I, I grew and sold weed and, um, and I waited on tables at Denny's uh, for about eight years. I became one of their training uh, uh, unit supervisors or whatever. I trained all the ser servers in our district, but that was kind of what, what I, uh, my management skills were. And I didn't, I, I was bored. I didn't want to, I didn't want that to be my, my life as, as, you know, 60 years old waiting on tables. Fuck that. So uh, I had a Rottweiler at that time and I loved dogs. I mean, I, I never bred dogs at the time, but I got into uh, uh, protection dogs and I got into it as a sport. They, they have a, a sport called French ring sport where your dog has to do obedience, agility and, and protection work uh, and get scored on it. But I got into that with my rot. He didn't do very, he didn't do very well. So I sold him and ended up uh, with a, a breed called a Belgian Malinois. And um, that's where beautiful dogs they are yeah i don't know if yeah you know what they are it's they are a beautiful breed i they, they use them for explosive dogs quite a lot over here yes the explosive dogs they use them for police work they use them for i mean all the tracking sport uh, i dealt with um at that time i was uh i just got my first uh, female and she was two years old she was she was abused from, from an abuse home and i i, I put a goal on on, on yeah I tried to put a goal on it on us to make her a ring dog to to put a high competition title on her, but I, we did well. But because of her, her she was gun shy. Uh, I could never get her past uh, ring one. She got she she got out of a hundred points. I think she scored ninety point ninety one points for her brevet score and ring one. She couldn't get past the gunfire. So she was just a real skittish dog because of her past but I used her as a breeder. She was my first dog that I bred. And I, and the first male I used was an imported male from uh, France. And his name was, um, God damn it, Atos. His name was Atos. And he, he bred my first litter. And um, out of that first litter, because they were both from working lines, um, I had a really nice uh, temperament of litter pup, uh, pups for the right type of work that we're doing. And, and this is where I started breeding and started realizing that there's a lot more to breeding than just making the dog or making the dog look like a dog, you know, making it look like a, a Malinois. Uh, why is a Malinois a Malinois? It's because it's a working dog. It has to have certain tendencies and its, its, its temperament and its, and its behavior. And, and that got me into the breeding for drive and mindset instead of confirmation. And this is where it's a lot more challenging than breeding for confirmation. Anybody can breed for confirmation, but breeding for drive, there's different types of things. You have to be more physical with the dog. You have to uh, test the dog a lot harder. Um, but I got into breeding um, Malinois. I did it for a total of over 20 years in, in my adventure. I produced, um, in ring sport, I produced over 300 working dogs, titled working dogs. Uh, many ring threes. I, I, I scored, I produced the first, uh, uh, oh, no, our club scored the first perfect score 
ever in Brevet in the United States. And then we did it again six months later with a different dog and a different uh, different uh, judge. So we did it back to back. And, and we, we took like Canadian nationals first place in Canada with working dogs and stuff like that. But we did a lot. Of, I did a lot of this. And, and remember, I was specifically breeding for oh, uh, traits that aren't usually uh, bred for, which is drive. <laughs> Here's my puppy. Um, it's I good timing. It. We're talking dogs. Yeah. Well, I think Mama Hoka just walked in. But um, I bred. I bred a lot of these dogs for police work. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the competitions that we were involved with. Oh, sorry about that. A lot of the competitions that we were involved with were um, that we had. You know, police officers there looking for uh, uh, dogs for their department and so forth. So I ended up um, when after a couple of competitions up in uh, Canada where our dogs did really well, uh, the RCMP, the head guy for the RCMP purchasing department for canines uh, contacted me and told me that he wanted to buy as many dogs as I could produce males. And he wanted them at 49 days old on the plane at 49 days old. So it was like, really? I mean, for a breeder, that's a gold mine. It's also a, a hazard because now you turn into a, um, what do they call it? Um, uh, I forget, I forget what they call it, where you just breed for to breed, but I still had to breed for certain traits or the quality of my dogs had, would go down. So I, I made, you know, sometimes my stud service, I'd have to pay $2,000 for stud service for, for some of these imported lines, um, some title, you know, ring threes and stuff, some really nice dogs, but it was worth it because um, I'm breeding, you know, competition dogs and, and police dogs that were high level. What, what was kind of creepy at the time is because I had I was growing in three different houses and rentals and stuff at the time and um, and you can imagine the the inner stress that you you have to deal with when you're dealing with police officers and dogs that are being trained to bust people like me <laughs> you know it was it was kind of a weird cycle hoping you don't see your dog at your own door one day no it wasn't you know I knew that they were going to Canada but they were going after people that were doing what I was doing. And it, it, it really bothered me, you know, for, and I, I only did that for about three years, you know, it was good income, um, but I, it just couldn't, I, I couldn't do it any longer because I, because I started going towards the pot the, the I, I didn't look at Mary Jane as commercially uh, as I did when I was younger anymore, when I got out of the dogs, it was different. It was, it, it turned, it, it was, it's different. How to, I don't know how to explain it at one point in time, because of the way the business was back in the eighties and nineties, it, it didn't matter. I mean, if it was pot and it was, it was sellable, I sold it. I mean, if I could, if I could sell it at three days dry, I would sell it. I mean, it, it didn't really matter at that time because you're trying to make as much money as you can really quick. Cause you probably never see that dude again anyway. I mean, that's, that was the game back then but it stepped up late 80s late 90s quality now the competition started getting so you couldn't sell your your pot dry you couldn't sell your pot uh untrimmed you, you know you had to take the fucking uh, logs out of your i mean there's times when i bought a quarter pound guys and like half of it was stem <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you, you had to cut that shit out you know so, but that was uh the, the market I've seen the market change so so many so many ways through the years um but yeah that, that kind of irked me about doing the dogs and I got away from the dog especially for the the police departments and stuff I did work with a couple of uh, uh police officers with their personal dogs 
um, towards the end of my dog training career. Matter of fact, that's what ended my dog training career is one of the dogs that I was working, the last cop dog uh, blew out both of my rotator cuffs and I couldn't, I couldn't do that work anymore. But so I concentrated on breeding cannabis at the time and because I just love breeding. I was breeding everything. I bred everything that I had my hands on. If I had a pair of them, I, I wouldn't want to buy another pair from anybody. I'd breed them and you know, figure out a way. I, I bred fighting betas. There was a time when me and this guy named Louie, um, bless his soul, he died of uh, liver cancer. He was one of my best friends. But we, uh, we sat around when we were younger, about 35, 40 years old. And he, he would come by and, and visit with me because I didn't let anybody in the house. It was just him. I trusted him. And he'd come by and say, yeah, I, I brought some beer over, half rack. So he'd come over and we, we just get drunk, man, just sit there because he'd never smoke weed, but he didn't care if I did. And, and, and I, I didn't know he liked breeding too. So he, he's a pit bull breeder. And he told me, he goes, he goes, yeah, you, are you into fighting fish? I said, well, not really, but what do you want to do? He goes, let's go to the pet shop and pick up a, a dozen fighting fish and we'll, we'll fight them for beers. <laughs> I said, okay, sounds good to me. So that's what we ended up doing for about two months. We ended up going every weekend to the fucking pet shop and buying all the, their betas and putting them in a jar in the middle of our table and watching them fight and the winner gets to drink the beer, right? So that was, uh, that was kind of our hobby. Then we turned it into, okay, let's see what you can breed. Since you can breed dogs, Louie, let's see if you can breed some fish and make them better than my, my fish that I'm going to breed. And we did it. We bred for about two years on those fighting betas. And let me tell you, the betas are a fucking pain in the ass to raise because you got to feed the babies micronutrients and, and, and these uh, uh, one-celled animals and shit. And, you know, I forget, uh, protozoas and all the fucking diatoms and shit. You got to, the babies are very, very fucking pain in the ass to deal with. But anyways, uh, we started breeding and selecting and stuff and we ended up with some fucking killer ass our females would carry them usually females aren't as aggressive especially when you get them around the pet store but our females were fucking killing some of the males in there it was uh it was it, and we never i mean you know people think it's cruel but that's they would do that in nature in my opinion i mean we bred i just wanted it was an experiment we wanted to see if we could breed very very aggressive uh beta fish his, from his camp from his stable against my stable and it worked we bred some really fucking cool fish and um yeah that's that's kind of you know those are the kind of things i dipped into just playing around i mean we were playing around with betas i bred oscars uh i, I bred uh uh, parakeets i mean i bred just about everything i got my hands on um but i my favorite of course is cannabis right now it's it's not the funnest because it takes so long i it's you know breeding guppies i right i tell you right now i've, I've got a, a a house full of guppies we got probably 500 guppies in our tanks right now and it's only because i'm trying to teach mama hoka genetics and she's uh, going overboard on it no, that's fair enough, man. Uh, it, yeah, it's an interesting one. Like, I don't know, Fisher, they're, they're a life form. I'm not going to say they're higher or lower. I got mixed mixed feelings about it, but every people have got a past. I'll say that as well. And I don't. Th it doesn't sound like it's the kind of thing you would do. You'd plan to do currently, right? What's that? Uh, sure. Breed breed for aggression to like. Oh no, no, that was just, the, that was when I was younger. We were just drinking and having fun and just want, we wanted to see if we could do it. Like, man, the, the, cause we were getting uh, fish from the pet shops and only half of them would fight. The other, like they would, it would take a long time before they would even square up. 
Like these guys are wimps. Like they don't have no good fighters here. So that's why we, we were motivated to make our own. And it was kind of an experiment and, and it worked. It kind of worked. But um, yeah, the, the, the other things that like the guppies, when I started breeding guppies, that was, uh, I was, I was, uh, let's see, what was it? 10, I was about 10 or 11 years old. We were down in Florida and I was catching uh, uh, these wild guppies out of the stream close to the home. And they just looked like little brown. I, I don't know if you guys ever seen wild guppies. They just, they look so bland and brown and gray. And uh, I wanted it. I, I used to keep them in like one or two gallon jars and put little arrow stones and stuff in them. And, but I had like 10 jars. That's what I started with. And I ended up uh, uh, doing some uh, selection and stuff. And I, I bred some fantails. That was my, my first venture in, in breeding guppies. I bred enough fan, blue tail fan, uh, uh, fantails to trade back to the pet shop to get my aquariums. I ended up with like five or six aquariums with my breeding projects. But this is when I was a young kid and just, you know, just by accident, I don't, I don't think I had, I know I didn't have the knowledge of what I was doing. It was like, I'll put this blue one in with uh, that female that has a little bit of blue on it, you know, and, and it ended up to where uh, just by accident, my selections were happening, but it taught me selection it was by accident that i got into it but i learned from it because it stayed with me yeah man well it's definitely information that you've brought across and been able to eye up what your selection process is going forward so adventure well all part of the journey man it's not like you can go back and change it now yeah. Well, you know, what's nice is, is to be able to share a lot of it. You know, I did learn, you know, some through the books. I, I read Marijuana Botany pretty, pretty intently. Um, and they got a really good reading section in there, guys, if you ever check it out. Uh, but, but, you know, application and, and learning from results of putting your hands on, whether it's cannabis or fish or birds, that, that's, I mean, you're going to learn things that, that you will never learn from a book. Yeah, man. Well, I, I also, I, some, I sometimes refer that as turning the uh, information into knowledge, because sometimes I can read on a subject for like three, four months and then be like, you know what, there's no point reading anything else because I can't actually garner anything else. I've actually got to start doing it to start dissolving the information, put it to memory and shit. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't keep a, a, I don't have a good memory. I mean, not, not the best. As I'm getting older, I'm losing a lot of it. So I, it, documentation is very, very important because, I, like I said, I can't even remember if it was, uh, I know it was ADAG 13, was HP or is Hayes. I can't remember. It's one of those. But I think they were crossed to either both. That's why I keep mixing them up. But yeah, this is a, a, a quite a journey. What, what I'm excited about is to see the new generation of breeders and growers that are stepping in. The, you guys don't have the restrictions that I had. So you, you had the, the potential for unlocking the gems and stuff. That, and just, just the process of everything is, is accelerated, in my opinion. Hell yeah, man. Well, I've just noticed we're getting close to the hour and a half mark. I know we did we did set the time out and I don't want to push you too much for time because I always like to have, well, like people to feel like they want to come back rather than they were being drawn out, you know. Well, like I said, man, I really appreciate your time and your uh, hospitality here. Uh, you let me sit here and ramble for an hour and a half and uh, 
man, I feel like I just barely touched on some of these stories I want to share, but yeah, I'll, I'll be back for sure. It was fun. Well, as well, like I said to you before, um, the, the number's the same. So anytime, if you see that we're doing a hangout, you're more than welcome to jump in. And I'm sure we're going to have to do a part two because the listeners are definitely very interested in, in your process, man. And everything you do over on the Discord channel as well, because you're definitely pushing the community forward with that. I appreciate it, man. Like I said, much love and, and, and blessings to the, to your audience here and uh, to Kino and yourself. Uh, you guys are doing a great job. And, and, and I just want to uh, ask you if you, if you need more content, I mean, this part, probably talk to you afterwards, but all my, all, all the, all the growers and breeders that I, I mean, the breeders that I got on my Discord channel, I'd love to have them come on your show uh, one at a time if uh, you're interested. Hell yeah, man. We're always looking to have discussions with people all over the place. Right? The more rooms we get to visit, the more ideas we get for how to make our own grow rooms better. Oh, good. Well, I'll talk to you a little bit uh, offline on that. Hell good yeah, deal. man. Well, I suppose I'll say thank you to everybody for listening. And, well, I, I'll do my normal, normal sign off of start a worm bin. But I'll catch you all probably tomorrow night for a Groomstead episode. Hey, much Stay. love, guys. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. I see everybody in chat now. We'll, we'll catch you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you again. <laughs>